welcome to the Hybrid Club Scout Podcast with me, Emily Einolander. And me, Corinne Pulaski. And guest host, Chris Curran. Hi, folks. We are mapping the frontier between traditional and indie publishing. And today, that also means some extremely audaciously embarrassing flimflammery. <laughs> Um, so we're, we're talking about the, uh, the Hitler diaries scam today, and, um, it's a pretty cuckoo banana story. And I just want to get your kind of initial impressions of it. Uh, do you want to tell us Corinne, what you think? Uh, yeah, I think, uh, cuckoo bananas goes a ways toward describing this story, uh, a good way towards it. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, like, it's kind of impressive how this guy was like able to pull one over on so many people for like a while, you know, mm-hmm. people who definitely should have known better and were experts in all these the subject areas. Um, and I feel like it was just his pure love of Nazism that really <laughs> carried him, you know, um, the whole way through this. And uh, I don't know what to say about that, except for- An act of guy. love. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. So no, but it's crazy. I mean, it's a it's a scams go. I feel like it's you know it's a pretty good one. I mean, it's he's I would say in lockstep with like Elizabeth Holmes, certainly or <laughs> Anna Delvey, who we were just talking about before we started recording. Uh, some of the best loved scammers in the world today. Um, so yeah, but the, yeah, he was uh he was something. This guy. So yeah, that's my reaction. I don't know if his voice was that low, but um. yeah, that's probably true. I don't think hers is either, but <laughs> we'll never know. So, yeah. What about you, Chris? What do you think? Complete cuckoo bananas. I love cuckoo <laughs> bananas. That is a great expression for it. Mm-hmm. Um, anytime that there are these uh, crazy fraud stories, I love them. Um, the There was something about like a Thomas Jefferson wine bottle that was forged um that supposedly came from his vineyard uh the billionaire's vinegar is the name of that book um <laughs> see, if you can, see if you can find it it has a lot to do with the Koch brothers who oh boo yeah um <laughs> obviously <laughs> but uh any anyway anytime that there's anything to do with any of these kinds of crazy frauds and and ridiculous schemes i'm all for it all for the ridicule yeah all right so let's set the scene so it's germany april 21st 1945 in the last days of the third reich two planes leave berlin at dawn one of them carrying hitler's valet wilhelm arndt who is escorting hitler's private documents by evening hitler's chief pilot hans bauer reported that one of the planes had crashed in a small village outside dresden the one that held Arndt and the documents. Hitler shouted, In that plane were all my private archives, what I had intended as a testimony for posterity. It is a catastrophe. A catastrophe! (laughs) (laughs) The collection consisted of a previously unpublished sequel to Mein Kampf, an opera that the Fuhrer had written with one of his childhood friends and a large collection of his private diaries. Years later, the documents, not destroyed after all, were discovered, yada, 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 in 1983, the Stern News Magazine in Western Germany, after selling serial rights to publications across the Western world, announced the discovery. 
Within a few days, Stern was totally discredited. The diaries were exposed as forgeries and two Hitler loving dumbasses were arrested. We're going to talk about what kind of dumbasses and dumbassery led up to the diaries being taken for genuine articles and shown to the world as such. Exploring what mistakes publishers and reporters made to let something like this happen. And of course, we will unveil how the scam was brought to an end. Okay, so some content warnings up top. Nazis, like a lot of Nazis, including <laughs> casual, shameless neo-Nazism long after the Third Reich is over. There's a lot of that in this story. Um, also, characters in this story are Holocaust deniers or revisionist historians who wanted to revive Hitler's image and have history smile more fondly upon him. It just one thing about this story that just blew my mind was how many people missed the Third Reich in the immediate aftermath of World War II in Germany. Well, not just in Germany, in England and America as well. Yeah, yeah. It's always the American side that shocks me the most. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know anymore. In the past, it would have, but well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh um, so, uh, Chris, tell us what our sources are. Well, our sources today are an episode of the podcast Fraudsters called Hitler Fan Fiction That Everyone Believed. Another one, the British ITV show Selling Hitler from 1991, uh, which, by the way, you can find on YouTube. I'll link it. Yay. And then, of course, The Hitler Diaries, Fakes That Fooled the World by Charles Hamilton, 1991 University Press of Kentucky. I would like to note that I respect how much open spite the author has for all the neo-Nazis <laughs> in the story and also for Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> and there will also be several articles we'll link in the show notes on hybridpubscout.com. And a notable point we want to make from the very top, both the scammers, many of the people who were scammed, and at least one person who revealed the scam were huge Nazi fans by which I mean either uh, neo-Nazis or at least major right-wingers. And that makes it more insidious and easier to deride in every possible way. And it's definitely, there were some people who were just like openly, I love Hitler so much, but then there were also people who were like, oh, I just think he's really interesting. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> just, you know, uh, fascinating character, a great man of history. A great man of history. A great man of history. <laughs> <laughs> like fucking um, uh, Dan Carlin, one of Dan Carlin's great men of history. Oh, God. Um, oh, I don't think he's a Nazi, but yeah. yeah. Anyway, <laughs> you know what I mean. Good save. Good save. <laughs> I am not a Nazi. <laughs> the world is always ending. My Dan Carlin voice. <laughs> All right. That said, the main characters in the story are a couple of guys named Conrad Kuyau who went by Conrad Fisher to jumps, I mean, the Nazi memorabilia correct collectors, and Gerd Heidemann. So first we have Conrad Kuyau, the man who forged the diaries themselves. His entire life was a series of failed businesses and successful grifts. His lawyer would later go on to make this amazing statement. I do not think you can call Kuyau a liar exactly. He is really more of a romantic who is not too careful to distinguish fact from fiction. That's what my, that's what my ex-boyfriend's mom used to say about him. <laughs> <laughs> Kuyao's true calling was to sell fake Nazi memorabilia and art and manuscript forgery. 
it was very, very illegal to possess Nazi memorabilia in East Germany. So Kuyao paid low, low prices to get enough memorabilia to start selling them at a profit to other doofuses who missed the Third Reich so much. So he could jack up his prices even higher. He also got very good at creating fake authentication documents. And as an art lover who claimed, without any proof, to have dropped out of art school just like his hero, he decided to start out by forging Hitler's paintings. And by the middle of 1978, he was selling signed copies, you know, signed Adolf Hitler of Mein Kampf. <laughs> <laughs> um, including a couple of volumes that he wrote in his approximation of Hitler's handwriting, even though the original documents were well known to have been typewritten. So Hitler never wrote Mein Kampf in his own handwriting, but for some reason, people bought these things. So to sum up, big Nazi fan and a guy who actively loved his own ability to lie and fool people. Uh, Gerd Heidemann was a journalist who worked for a stern news magazine in Berlin. He had a huge fixation on Nazi war criminals to the point that his editors at Stern were sick of him bringing Nazi-related ideas to them by the time he discovered the diaries. Due to his personal obsession, he went so far as to buy Hermann Goring's yacht, the, the <laughs> sorry, the Karen II, uh, yes, that Hermann Goring, um, and ended, ended up having an affair with Goering's daughter Edda. Since it was a very expensive yacht, he ended up entering the world of memorabilia collectors and other Third Reich fanboys trying to sell the thing or at least recoup some of that money by reselling Nazi knickknacks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I like these, that, huh? Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, these, two <laughs> these two embarrassments came into contact with one another when Heidemann tried to sell Goering's yacht to Ku Yao's favorite customer, Reed, favorite Mark, Fritz Stifel uh, showed him his forged Hitler diary that Ku Yao had sold to him. Nothing had ever made him harder than holding that diary in his hands. Sorry. I love it. No, 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 no apologies. Um, and from that moment, he was dead set on purchasing and publishing those diaries. Here's how the scam went down. Heidemann was convinced he'd made the biggest discovery ever, but he spent so much time writing about the Third Reich and chasing down former Nazi war criminals. His editors at Stern were completely uninterested in any more Nazi content from this guy. They called him the reporter with the Nazi bug and, he, and said he was deeply stuck in the Nazi mud. Heidemann knew his editors were tired of his obsession and he believed they were too anti-Hitler to appreciate the diaries. So he went over their head and got the whole thing approved and financed by the head of the parent company, Gruner and Yar, Manfred Fischer. When Manfred Fischer saw the diaries, according to Hamilton, by his own admission, the mere touch of this cheap dime store notebook gave him a sensual thrill that was close to ecstasy. Waves of almost orgasmic joy swept over him as he fondled the tea-stained pages and caressed the sleazy leatherette cover. Okay, quick pause for a moment. <laughs> I fucking yeah. love this guy. Ew. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> Kuyao fed the diaries one by one to Heidemann and insisted that he wouldn't be required to deal with anyone else whatsoever. Heidemann promised to get 27 notebooks by the middle of 1981, though Stern would end up with about 35 of them. You'd think the delays in between and the fact that Heidemann hadn't even seen all of them at that point, 
would be a little bit of a red flag, but I guess you could justify that by the way payments are doled out. However, it did mean Kuya was writing by hand one to three diaries per month, which as forgeries go, that's that's pretty impressive. <laughs> Meanwhile, Heidemann also managed to contact the executor to Hitler's estates that Heidemann would get the rights to any unpublished original works by Adolf Hitler. Over time, he managed to get nearly 10 million marks out of Manfred Fischer to pay out to Kuyao. That'd be the equivalent of about $6 million. Yowza. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> Uh, the diaries themselves were extremely boring. When he finally started writing, Ku Yao presented Hitler as a peace-loving guy who was tricked by the associates he trusted into doing all those bad things. He loved platitudes and complained about things like his stomach pain and the loud screech owl outside his bedroom. Evil dictators, they're just like us. The fictional Hitler was against book burning, thought the laws against Jewish people went too far sometimes and reacted to Kristallnacht by saying, what will they say abroad? Hamilton said it was, by and large, a presentation that would have excited the approval and envy of Joseph Goebbels. For unknown to Stern, there was scarcely a true word in it, yet it carried the ring of truth. It had the simple, prosaic narrative style of the Bible. One could hardly contradict it without appearing to be an iconoclast. Ku Yao talked to his former Nazi friends to get ideas about tone. He also used a very specific two-volume work of Hitler's speeches to fill out the timeline and add little historical details to make it seem more authentic. To create the forgeries, Kuyao would drive to East Germany and buy notebooks. He also bought black and blue ink, mixed them together, and watered them down so he could use a cheap modern pen to write with. He would randomly spill tea on the pages, even though supposedly they weren't even 40 years old. He got a seal made in Hong Kong and tried to put A-H in gold on the front of the diaries. He accidentally used F-H in the Gothic script. He used black ribbon from an actual SS document and attached it to the cover with a Wehrmacht wax seal. And for, for the record, he didn't like, he didn't like have a seal made in Hong Kong. He just like <laughs> bought a seal from Hong Kong. With oh, the wrong got it, letters. got it. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past him. This guy's fucking nuts. So, you know. Yes, but he's very secretive. He's very secretive about his arts. So not only was Heidemann very secretive about the whole thing with the rest of his colleagues, Stern was very secretive about the whole thing as well. Um, they didn't want to get scooped on the biggest story in thirty years. So after a vetting process that we'll go into a little bit, they'll, they finally issued an over 30 page memorandum that was issued to publications that Stern was interested in selling the story to, recounting the exciting tale of the plane crash, the peasants pulling trunks of documents from the wreckage and squirreling it away to keep Nazis from finding it, et cetera, et cetera. There was that big mysterious in between, kind of like step one crash plane into East German forest with all Hitler's personal documents. Step two. Step three, profit. <laughs> so when Stern was shopping the manuscript around, they talked about the plane crash, but not when and how the documents were discovered or why it took so long. Because they didn't know. <laughs> People knew the plane crash happened because the actual pilot had given interviews and written about it in his memoirs but he'd never actually mentioned what the documents were or what were in any of them. 
Um, and as Hamilton says in his book, the providence of a fake is always ambiguous. If the forger does reveal his source, it turns out to be someone who is dead or who was just left for parts unknown or whose life or reputation would be jeopardized if his name is revealed. And in this case, Kuyao made up a brother who oh. like he pretended he had a brother who was some kind of officer or like secret agent and would get in huge trouble and perhaps killed if it were revealed he were doing all these dealings in East Germany. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. So in the end, the Sunday Times of London, owned by Rupert Murdoch, bought the British serial serialization rights and Newsweek bought the American rights. And I will not even go into the bidding war and how Stern fucked that up, um, <laughs> but they did. There was, there was a part where they asked for $4.25 million Whoa. and the Sunday Times just got up and walked out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> they had to like oh. beg them to buy the rights. Oh my that. God. One of the most interesting sidebars here, I think, is the fact that in 1968, the Sunday Times had already gotten into a similar situation where they made a deal to buy Mussolini's diaries, which turned out to be forgeries. You would think they would learn, but some assholes just love their fake news. It's Rupert Murdoch. Rupert Murdoch is assholes. <laughs> More than one. Reporters, publishers, and their consultants made a lot of mistakes. For one thing, nobody checked into Heidemann's source because Heidemann convinced them that it was too dangerous for the person who had acquired the diaries. Big red flag. Mm -hmm. Kuyao was basically allowed to keep his anonymity, even though he was known in the Nazi memorabilia circles, and even though he had been caught forging other pieces of art throughout his life. How is this acceptable? <laughs> You know, like they, they have to protect their sources, Chris, even though it's like not an actual international scandal or like ongoing story. It's something that was found years and years ago. They still have to protect the source. <laughs> Nonsense. <laughs> they also tried to get authenticators for these docs, but they did it in a very half-assed way. One of the most important authenticators was Hugh Trevor Roper, who was a British historian who wrote a book called The Last Days of Hitler, published in 1947, and edited Hitler's War Directives, 1939-45. He was also a Regis Professor of Modern History at Oxford, and had been made a Lord, Lord Dacre by Margaret Thatcher, who apparently could make Lords. He was asked by the Sunday Times to give the diaries his seal of approval. Stern sent him to a shrine-like storage vault where they had the diaries and a number of other documents to use to authenticate it. After examination, he called the diaries the most important historical discovery of the decade and a scoop of Watergate proportions. Here's the problem, though. Those other documents they brought Lord Dacre to use as comparisons also came from Ku Yao's collection. They were all forgeries. Newsweek sent a German-Jewish-American professor named Gerhard Weinberg, who was convinced by a line where Hitler called Neville Chamberlain a quote-unquote clever fox. He also noticed that, for some reason, Kuyao had signed the bottom of every page of the diary with Hitler's name. He said, Nobody in their right mind would forge Hitler's signature hundreds of times and think they'd get away with it. Little did he know, none of these people were in their right mind. 
The greatest method they used of testing authenticity was giving samples of the pages, photocopies, not originals, to handwriting experts. Hamilton also wrote that two of the handwriting experts they used didn't even know German. He also went into a long, almost 10-page description of all the people who could have looked at the diaries and given their opinions, but weren't consulted. There were available in Germany, England, and America many experts competent to pass judgment on the diaries. They included persons who had known Hitler intimately and historians who had known Hitler intimately and historians who had studied his life and career. There were also experts in Hitler's script who could recognize it instantly and who could read with ease the old Gothic hand in which the diary was penned. Still alive in Germany were some of Hitler's aides and secretaries who had not only been with the Fuhrer every day over a period of years, but were familiar with his handwriting, his ideas, and his mode of expression. This goes on for almost 10 pages, as we mentioned, and he just names person after person in the relationship <laughs> to Hitler. A couple of secretaries, his bodyguard, his personal assistant, um, people who were at his wedding, you know, hours before he killed himself. <laughs> the spite, the spite in this author's heart is, is I love it. <laughs> It drips from the pages. Oh, it really does. <laughs> and another thing they didn't do was get any forensic evidence. They didn't send any documents to West Germany's federal archives, the Bundesarchive, until they had already sold the rights and announced the discovery to the world. The hoax was uncovered pretty quickly. In fact, right before the stories went to press. So there were problems with content when Trevor Roper found out that he was comparing the diaries to documents that came from the same source that some of the other forgeries that had been uncovered. He knew he'd made a huge mistake. He made a quote unquote full 180 regarding their authenticity. But by then his name was all over everything endorsing the hell out of the diaries. Um, he told Stern about his doubts right before they were about to make the announcement, and he wasn't the only one cautioning them against this, but more on that later. And the Sunday Times, mostly because he was the guy that the Sunday Times sent to test things, quote unquote test, um, stare at in a magical vault in Switzerland is more like. <laughs> um, everyone moved forward with it anyway, um, with Rupert Murdoch with the Sunday Times of London leading the charge. Murdoch is quoted as saying... Fuck Lord Dacre, publish. <laughs> then later on, when he was confronted about the misinformation he'd been complicit in spreading, he said, We are in the entertainment business. Circulation went up. We didn't lose money or anything like that. <laughs> Your Murdoch spot <laughs> <is> on. <laughs> I mean, he's Australian, so it was he probably Australian. something it was like, yeah. we are in the entertainment <laughs> business. That is much or now. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Did I ever tell you I went to I was at a book party in New York that he attended with his no. like child bride at the time? That woman <laughs> that he was married to, her name, her name was Wendy something. Um, who was like, you know, half his age or something. But I just remember he looked like death walking. Like he was so old and yeah. she was like so beautiful. And it was just like, oh, it was, yeah, it was horrifying. Anyway, I just, that's my Rupert Murdoch story. It was just that I saw him in person and he was exactly as you would imagine, just like <sighs> a bag of skin roving around. Uh, it was terrible. Yeah, it was awesome. Crypt keeper. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was pretty gross. So anyway, yeah. yeah. There was there was a day where Chris and I, I think Chris, you were driving us to or something like that. <laughs> and you were like, Emily, if you could burn anyone in effigy, who would it be? And I was like, Rupert Murdoch. And you were like, deep cut. <laughs> I don't remember who you said, though. I, yeah, I. Um, who would I burn? I don't know. Let me think on that. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Who would I burn? <laughs> if you can't think of anyone by the end of the episode, we'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> so fact checkers were also able to find the historical volumes Kuyao had used to map out the timeline and discovered that there were no dates in the diary that didn't match up to dates used in the books. If there wasn't something on a particular date in the book that he was using, there wasn't an entry in the diary for that date either. Um, so also this piece of shit, David Irving, who is a Holocaust denier, um, English, um, was unsurprisingly one of the people who was instrumental in identifying the diaries as fakes um, because he loves, you know, loves Hitler so much. Um, <laughs> So he was one of the people who got a look at the collection of documents that were being used um, through his contacts in the memorabilia circles, because um, he wasn't supposed to see it because it was supposed to be hush hush. But obviously, someone's going to open their mouth at some point. Right. Um, so he got a look at the collection that were being used to compare to the diaries and pointed out inconsistencies in spelling and writing style in the documents that were being used to compare the diaries to for authenticity. So the ones that um, Trevor Roper looked at. Um, notably at the press conference where the Sunday Times announced the find, he stood up during the question and answer session and asked how Hitler could have written his diary in the days following the 20 July plot when his right arm had been injured. And there were pictures of him shaking hands with Mussolini with his left arm. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> oh, oh no, the biggest gotcha. The thing that blew the top off the whole scam? Forensic evidence. Obviously. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. <laughs> so Dr. Arnold Rentz, from the West Germany Federal Archive had a few pages of documents that revealed enough doubt before the announcement of the diaries to express doubts about the age of the paper. They also found there was a type of bleach used in the paper that didn't exist at the time. It showed up when they shone ultraviolet light. There was also polyester in the binding, which didn't exist before 1953. Within a couple of weeks, 15 volumes of the diaries were sent to forensic scientists in Germany and Switzerland for further investigation. They found that there were modern components and ink not used in Germany at the time. The way the chloride in the ink had evaporated showed that it had only been written in the last couple of years. It was pretty easy to uncover almost immediately. So here's what happened to our anti-heroes. One really fun part of this is the fact that for the 9.3 million marks, Ku Yao ended up with 3 million. Heidemann skimmed a lot of it and bought multiple properties and cars. When Ku Yao found that out, he turned himself in and went all in on bringing Heidemann down, mostly because he'd been cheated, but also because he was convinced Heidemann knew all along the diaries were forgeries. 
Kuyao mentioned on one occasion when he couldn't get the same letterhead he'd been using all along for a batch of his diaries and then delivered the diaries to Heidemann saying, I did not open my mouth to discuss a thing. I took the money and I handed him diaries four and five. He leafed through them, then thrust them in his valise. Not a word about the missing letterheads. It was now clear to me that Heidemann knew the diaries were forgeries. After a year-long investigation, both Ku Yao and Heidemann went to trial. They were charged with defrauding Stern of 9.3 million Deutschmarks. Heidemann was found guilty of stealing 1.7 million and got four years and eight months. And Ku Yao of receiving 1.5 million and got four years and six months. Where did the rest of the money go? Eh, who knows? <laughs> Kuyao got out of jail and started to sell quote-unquote forgeries of Dali paintings with his own name signed at the bottom because they were forgeries. Get Aww. it? Isn't that cute? Yeah. Adorable. Yeah. What a cutie. And <laughs> went on. And Heidemann went on to be accused of being a Stasi agent. And he lived a life of shame and bitterness. Good. <laughs> So let's talk about the legacy of the Hitler diaries, just a free-flowing discussion of the bullshit (laughs) that was and is. Um, I would start by saying they they made tried to make Hitler into a soft little cuddly version of himself, um, saying over and over again that this discovery would make them rewrite the history books. And that's exactly what Holocaust deniers and neo-Nazis want, is to rewrite the history books in their favor. Um, It was so revisionist in the way it represented Hitler, Stern was at real risk of getting nailed for spreading pro-Nazi propaganda, which was big time illegal in post-war Germany. Um, And it took them about 10 years to recover their reputation as a reputable news source. Also, I hate Rupert Murdoch. I think, <laughs> I think we've been through that. Um, is Stern still around? Are they still publishing? Yeah, they appear to still exist. Oh, all right. They survived it. But yeah. by 2019, their circulation had fallen under half a million. Oh, embarrassing. Oh. Yeah. So there was a there was a thing that happened in 2017 mm-hmm. um, where they did a cover. Um in one of their editions that depicted Donald Trump draped in an American flag while giving stiff arm Nazi salutes. And the title of it was Seinkampf. My goodness. <laughs> What a bunch of uh, interesting, interesting, rich characters yeah. that we've discussed today. Oh, truly. Yes. Yeah. Do we have any closing thoughts? Um, I would like to see a Netflix documentary made about this, um, honestly, or some kind of whatever. It doesn't have to be on Netflix. Um. <laughs> you should watch that miniseries. Wait, which miniseries? The one from like 1991 that I oh. watched. It's very corny. Okay. Um, I love that. Obviously, because it was. 1991 yeah yeah making something like not corny yeah that's (laughs) yeah I mean no Twin Peaks was corny too (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so I would recommend that (laughs) yeah okay okay or death among the Mormons oh Oh. yes we keep talking about this yes I haven't seen it wait is that a book or is it a series no it's a it's a series on Netflix it's about um it's about an and 
an antiquarian uh, document dealer okay. um, selling um, old, God, what was the term they used? I think they called it Mormonalia. Ah, cool. Right? I, love, I love it. And um, this guy was responsible for the, uh, for the, for the quote unquote salamander letter. Oh, I've Ooh. heard about this. Yes. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And yeah, so, so with the Salamander, so this guy had been like passing off letters of Joseph Smith and Brigham yeah. Young and shit like that, or, you know, Mormonalia. Yeah. And the whole thing with the Salamander letter ultimately led to like three bombings in like 1985 or 1986 okay. in Salt Lake City. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Do yourselves a favor. It's like, I don't know, three or four episodes long. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, very much in this mm-hmm. kooky cuckoo bananas nonsense. yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah so when when you do dumb shit like this it has real world repercussions i think is, is the main yeah. lesson yeah also, also just like when you when you are a publisher you have a certain responsibility to the mm-hmm. fucking public yeah <laughs> yeah and the fact that these people were so obsessed a with it being absolutely true because it was so exciting and it would bring right. them so much money mm-hmm. and two not getting scooped above all other things they yes. could prioritize right um that creates a situation where you can be fucking fleeced mm-hmm. <laughs> and it works fuck you rupert fuck yeah. you rupert yeah yeah. Crypt Keeper Australian. <laughs> oh, <gasps> Tucker Carlson. Oh, the, the effigy you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. He would, yeah. he would cry a single tear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and wipe it with his bow tie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, what a fucking dork. Um, I think, well, not that I've been asked, but I'll tell you who I would choose for my effigy. Yes. Think of like, I would say, okay, I think both of these people are dead, but um, I would choose either Ayn Rand or <laughs> David Foster Wallace. <laughs> Hard to decide. Look, okay, but... if it's eff- if it's effigy, it doesn't matter whether they're alive or dead. It's okay. Simple. Well, then, yeah. Well, I choose both, then, I guess. So <laughs> excellent, <laughs> excellent. Oh man. Um, all right. Well, I, I think we uh, I think we covered it. There there yeah. is a lot more. There was so much more, and I I was sifting and I was looking through all of the spiteful words of Hamilton, <laughs> um, and the the very silly miniseries from ITV, which actually Peter Capaldi is in it, and oh. his hair is enormous. <laughs> the man, the Scottish man, has the largest hair I've ever seen in a Scottish man. <laughs> I will have what is the name of the miniseries? Um Selling Hitler, which was based on a book by the oh, same name. Okay. Which it, I would it. have gotten, but they didn't have an ebook version I could buy. Ah, okay. So, and and the, it was very expensive. I don't oh. I think I think it I don't know if it's in print anymore, in yeah. fact. Mm-hmm. But apparently it was the big book. It came out in 1987. Okay. Okay. Oh. So it was more immediate aftermath type yeah. stuff. Yeah. And it was, you know, less than 10 years when they made this mini series. Mm-hmm. So it was all still pretty fresh um, in terms of, you know, scandal. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, we've been through a lot today. Mm-hmm. Indeed. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> um, 
you can find us at hybridpubscout.com on Facebook and Twitter at hybridpubscout on Instagram at hybridpubscoutpod. Uh, please choose your favorite way of listening to podcasts, which you're probably doing right now. What? And leave us a five-star rating and a lovely little review if you feel the heart for it. Thanks for listening and thank you for giving a rip about your whiskey.